Philippians chapter 4. We're going to talk a little bit about prayer and such here today, among many other great things here this morning. As you know, um, we've been discussing joy. Joy's been the whole theme of the book of Philippians. That's a great topic to talk about, isn't it? How many people don't appreciate joy, you know? How many people hate to be around people that are joyful? I hope nobody raises their hands on those questions here because joy is one of those things that's very contagious, very encouraging. It's a blessing to be around people that are filled with joy. And as Christians, that should be a mark of the believers, one that's full of joy. So Paul's been writing this letter here now to encourage the church there in Philippi, regardless of circumstances, let's be people that are filled with joy. Now, there's some things that can rob us of our joy, and Paul's been going through that. Each chapter that we've been looking at in Philippians, we've been detailing one of those things that could potentially rob you of your joy, but how to overcome that. So we saw in chapter one, the secret of joy in spite of circumstances is having the single mind where Paul says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Chapter two, he said, the secret of joy in spite of people, because we all know people could potentially rob you of your joy if you allow it to or allow them to. But the secret of joy in spite of people is having the submissive mind. Considering others is better than yourself, Paul says in chapter two. Then in chapter three last week, we looked at the secret of joy in spite of things is having this spiritual mind. Paul says, listen, man, I've lived a life where I've had a lot of things that I could count as gain in my life. But he says, whatever I've counted as gain, he says, all of that is ultimately just a pile of refuse or dung, he would say, in comparison to the greatness of knowing Jesus, just knowing him. So Paul says, that's, that's my mind, my take here on things is regardless of what I maybe have accumulated or earned or gained, all those things are of little value next to Jesus. Well, now in chapter four, we look at another thing that can easily rob us of our joy. And this has been one of those things that I think has been a greater pandemic and uh, plague in society. And that is worry and anxiety. And how many people today are completely gripped with and riddled by worry and anxiety. Well, the Bible has a lot to say about that. And today we're going to see how the, the secret of joy is about a worry is having the secure mind. And Paul's going to give us several things that we can apply to have that right and secure mind. And so we're going to look at these first nine verses. We're going to see how we need to stand strong in unity, how we should stand strong in joy. We're going to stand strong in trust and stand strong in truth. So right there in verse 1, we read this, therefore, my beloved and long for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Now we come upon that great word again, therefore. Every time you see that word therefore in scripture, you ask yourself, what is it therefore? The word therefore is therefore the before. When you look at what came before the therefore, you begin to see more clearly what the before is there for, right? So Clear as, as mud for you right now. But what Paul is saying here is let's look back at what we were just addressing and talking about because that's going to play into what he's saying now. He's saying, therefore, now, because of what we just looked at, here's what I want to add and say to that now. It's kind of an important transitional word in Scripture. What has Paul just been talking about? Well, at the end of chapter 3, he's been warning the church here now, listen, be aware of those people that come into the church who profess to be believers, but their lives are lived absolutely contrary to the life of Christ. They come in and they say, listen, we're believers, but because we're in Christ now, we have all this grace. We can live as we want. These were the liberals that were creeping in. 
Earlier in chapter 3, Paul warned about the legalist that said you have to be this, you have to be that in order to be saved. Well, now the flip side is there's liberals that like to come in and say, you can do whatever you want. You can live as you want and everything's going to be okay. Love wins. God's going to just take care of everything. Paul says you need to be aware of these people because he says in chapter 3, verse 18, they are actually the enemies of the cross. He says at the end of verse 19 that they set their mind on earthly things. These are people that did not have a spiritual view. They did not have a mindset towards heaven. Remember Paul says, listen, we're citizens of heaven. We're not to be having a view towards the things of the world, looking at how we might gratify our own flesh based on the world. We're to be living for a higher call and that is our, our place in heaven, our, our, our life in Christ. We're, we're citizens of heaven. We're not to be living for this world, ultimately, is what Paul says. So then Paul moves on now in chapter 4, verse 1, to say, stand fast now in the Lord. Stand fast in the Lord. Don't get derailed by people that want to come in and try to twist things around or make you question your life in Christ and say, oh man, you're missing it. This is what it really is all about. Don't let people derail you. Stand fast in the truth of the Lord according to the word of God and don't get moved off of that path here now. Stay on that straight and narrow. It may not be a popular path in the world's eyes, but it's the path that leads to life. So stand fast in it. Don't get moved. Hold your ground in that. Now, I love what Paul begins to kind of reveal and show. The book of Philippians is written with such a, uh, uh, a real heartfelt um, you know, friendship and relationship with the people in Philippi. Notice what Paul says here. He says a couple times, my beloved in verse one. And then at the end of verse one, again, he says beloved. He's using this word agapetos in the Greek, which is that same word agape that, you know, speaks of God's love towards us. It's a love that's unconditional, that's self-sacrificial. Paul says, you know, I love you with this highest kind of love. And Paul is drawing this encouragement from other people around him. We're so thankful that we have people that we can be supporting, but also be supported by. Yes, we have the Lord, and that's all that we need. But it's wonderful when we can come together in Christian community to be that encouragement and help to be standing fast in the truth, to be a, a, a help and an encouragement support to one another. Paul says, you're my joy and my crown. My joy. Paul was just so delighted. Whenever he thought about the believers at Philippi, he had a close relationship with them. Paul, uh, I mean, he just, I think, looks back on his time at Philippi and seeing this church being formed with Lydia down by the river, this woman that began to have, you know, the gospel really open up to her. Then a demon-possessed girl that's following Paul around, and then he finally delivers her, and she gets saved, and then you got the, the, the guard in the prison that Paul was at that's ready to kill himself when he thought that Paul had escaped. Paul says, no, we're still here. Don't kill yourself. We're all good. And he gets saved. And so Paul saw the beginnings of this church there and the gospel taking root in people's lives. And he had such a heart for these people. He says, you're my joy, man. When I think back on all that God's done and all that God is continuing to do with you, I just have such joy. And that's interesting. He uses that term crown. That's an interesting way. It's, it might sound peculiar to us. We oftentimes don't think about, you know, to say to somebody, you're my crown. You, they look at you like, what are you talking about? Stay, you know, more than six feet from me here. This is a little bit weird. Uh, we don't use that kind of terminology, but in this day, Paul's referencing this, 
garland or wreath that was given to the victor in the athletic games. When a person would compete and win in their event, they would stand before the judge. It was known as the bema seat. Stand before the judge where they were given their prize. This garland wreath was placed upon their head. They'd walk around all day going, yeah, I'm number one. I got it. I'm the champ, you know. They'd walk around just excited and just celebrating in this prize. Paul says, I'm not looking for a, a, a garland wreath. I'm looking for fruit from my ministry that is like a crown. Paul understood that one day he's going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And he talks about that in 2 Corinthians 9, or sorry, 5, verse 9 to 11, where he says this. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. Paul knew that his faithfulness in Philippi to present the gospel has meant now lasting fruit that he will enjoy for all of eternity. Paul says, we're going to stand before the Lord one day, and, and this is going to be kind of reward or or fruit to my account now revelation says that you know we're going to be there worshiping the lord casting our crowns down before him we're ultimately going to be saying lord we're not you know we sometimes think man i hope i really get it i get a really big crown so i can walk around you know like in heaven going yeah baby i'm number one Woo, my crown's bringing your crown we sometimes think oh man i hope that's not the motive here the motive is just to see people come to know Jesus and brought before the Lord. But understand this. This is what Paul is getting at. Your life matters today. Your life counts for all of eternity. What we do now matters for all of eternity. You see, we can get that mindset where we're thinking, well, we're citizens of heaven. This world has no value for me. I don't need to live for this world. I'm not even going to worry about this world. I'm just going to live in isolation. I'm just going to live holding on to Jesus and just waiting for him to come. I'm not going to have any kind of contact with the world. We can live that way, but Paul says, no, that's not what is, is good or profitable. Our lives are to be lived as a witness in this world where we're sharing the gospel and our desire is to see many people come to know Jesus, that they're going to stand in heaven with the Lord with us. And many people will be like that crown for you. God's going to reward you. Understand that. God's going to reward you for what you do that has eternal value. That's why Jesus says, man, don't store it for yourself treasures here on earth. Store it for yourself riches in heaven. Treasure in heaven. Because that's what's really going to matter and count. And so, understand something too. As we talk about the judgment seat of Christ, a lot of times we as believers can think, you know, ooh, I'm kind of freaked out about the judgment seat of Christ. I'm not sure if I'm going to make it into heaven or not. I don't know if I'm going to be deemed worthy or not. Am I going to have something brought to my attention I didn't, uh, I didn't deal with and I'm not going to... The judgment seat for believers is not unto salvation. It's for rewards. God's going to bless you and reward you. There is coming a secondary judgment seat that is for unbelievers. Revelation talks about that. It's called the great white throne judgment. And that's going to happen after the millennial reign of Christ. When it says that death and Hades and the sea are going to give up their dead and they're going to stand before God at that great white throne judgment. That's a judgment that's that final sentence upon those that have rejected Jesus. That's not for believers. So don't confuse the two. Don't get worried about the judgment seat of Christ. Our sins are already judged through Jesus who died on a cross for us as we put our trust in him. It, judgment has already been issued. 
We stand before the Bema seat, a place of rewards, just as it was in those games here that Paul references. You're my crown now, and I'm thankful that I can store up treasures in heaven here. Now, in order to stand strong in unity with one another, we need to be sure that we're not allowing interpersonal conflict also to derail us. Paul addresses that next. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, Paul has caught wind that back in Philippi, there's a couple ladies that are not getting along. We're not sure exactly what the issue is. Probably best that we don't know. But I love how Paul handles this. What does he say? He says, hey guys, be of the same mind in the Lord. Paul's not looking to choose sides. He's not looking to sit down and go, okay, you already tell me your story. What's going on? Oh, what? Syntyche did that? I can't believe she did that. Well, man, you have every right to be angry. Yeah, I better talk to Syntyche. Why did you do that? Why did you treat Yodi like that? Oh, what? She did that? Oh my goodness, what is how? Paul's not trying to take sides. He's not trying to... He says, listen, guys, here's what matters. Be of the same mind in the Lord. And oftentimes, to us, we're looking at that going, yeah, who's got the right mind here? I think my mind is right. I think I'm, the, I'm in the right here. They did the wrong. I'm in the right. They need to deal with it. And oftentimes, we're just sitting back going, I'm not going to address that. They got to come to me. They got to make it right because they're the ones that wronged me. And we're just sitting back. I'm not going to say anything because they got to make the first step. You know. And we're sitting back that way. Paul says, stop doing that and just be the same mind in the Lord. You see, when you have the mind in the Lord, you're not worried about who's right. You're simply worried about what is helpful and beneficial and more so what is beneficial for that person. And ultimately, it's reconciliation and forgiveness. That's the way of Christ. That's the mind of the Lord. Paul laid that out for us very clearly in chapter 2, didn't he? He says, have the mind of Christ who came and he surrendered his rights. He gave up these things. He came and he gave his life sacrificially on a cross, died to the point of death, even the death of the cross, Paul says. Why? So that people could experience life in him, so that people could benefit. He did this very givingly, very self-sacrificially. He did this to the benefit of others. Jesus gave up his rights. And so to have that same mind in the Lord, Paul said, Euodian and Syntyche, don't worry about who's right here. Just have the mind of the Lord. Seek to be submissive to one another and serve one another and bless one another in this. That's what he's calling us to do. Now, what's interesting is that these women, they were very instrumental at one point with Paul in the gospel. I mean, they had kind of been serving the Lord. They've been doing a good thing. But now, again, they allowed hurts and grievances to sneak in and to kind of bring division and disunity. And, and, and Paul's calling us to stand strong in unity here. Unity is important. The Bible talks out about, about the church being unified. Why is unity so important? Well, because when the church is not unified, it leaves a very bad witness in the world. The world looks at the church that's divided, and they say, why would I want to be a part of that? If they can't even get along, why would I want to be a part of that? And Jesus doesn't get portrayed as the, the beautiful, gracious Savior that he is with that kind of a witness. So Paul calls for unity. And he, and he asks for his 
this true companion to help him out in this situation. Now, we're not sure who this true companion is. A lot of suggestions have been made. Some believe it's Timothy or even Luke. I, I believe, as, as many others do believe, that it, it probably Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was a man that came from Philippi to come and minister to Paul while he's there in Rome in prison to minister to his needs. And Paul was sending Epaphroditus back to them with this letter that he was writing now. And so he's referencing this true companion, this, this man Epaphroditus that's been a blessing to him. Paul's going to address him later in chapter here but could you imagine i mean here's epaphroditus coming back with this letter right now and uh he's gathering all the church you know hey guys i got the letter from paul we're gonna hear from paul tonight everybody gather together and we're gonna have a great time and we're gonna just read this letter and hear from paul and they get to chapter four and all of a sudden these two ladies sitting there probably on opposite sides of the room probably not looking at each other backs to each other arms probably folded just going ah, i can't believe she's here she has some nerve, I tell you. And all of a sudden, I implore Euodia. And I implore Syntax. Oh, no, they're going, this is not good. Can you imagine how many people would love to have their names written in the Bible for all of history? But not in this way. This is not the way you want to go down in history here. Paul just calls them out. He's like, guys, we need to deal with this here. You need to make this right here. You need to have the mind of the Lord and have that mind uh, in the Lord here. So Paul calls him out, but he's also reflecting on a number of fellow workers that were with him, whose names are in the book of life. I think that's so awesome. Paul enjoyed great partnerships with, with others. And there were times that Paul didn't see eye to eye with everybody, right? You look at Barnabas and Mark. Paul's on his first missionary journey with Barnabas, and Mark comes along. And then Mark eventually gets a little bit homesick. You know, he's a bit of a mama's boy. And he's like, I got to go home. And so Mark leaves, right? He's a young guy. And Next missionary trip, Barnabas like, well, let's get out there again. But uh, hey, I want to bring Mark with us. And Paul's like, no way, we're not bringing Mark. And he bailed on us last time. We're not going to go through that again. And Barnabas like, no, I think Mark needs to come. And so Paul and Barnabas saw it very differently here. They didn't agree on what the right thing to do was, but they didn't allow these disagreements to ultimately divide them. Yes, they went their separate ways, but God's work was carried out in a greater way as a result. And at the end of Paul's ministry, he calls for Mark. He says, he's helpful for me. It's an encouragement. You see, Paul didn't allow these differences to bring division, long-lasting division that ultimately disrupted relationships. No, there was reconciliation. There was forgiveness. And he's later able to go, man, Mark. Send him to me. I need, I need this guy. He's a blessing to me. I love that. That's that heart of Paul here. It's so important that we don't allow differences to divide because the enemy loves to get in there and make a mountain out of a molehill. What starts is just a little thought or a little grievance. The enemy just takes that. He goes, oh, I see you're kind of bothered by what that person did there, eh? Yeah, that wasn't right of them. Man, you, you really need to take it to them. You really need to show them that that was wrong or you need to kind of not give an inch here. They, they got to be the ones that come and, and seek reconciliation and forgiveness. No, you, you have every right to be wrong or to be mad. That's what the enemy loves to do. To take just a little grievance and start to feed that to where that little grievance becomes a greater disturbance. And it festers and it brews to where you are just hit now with full-on anger and rage and hostility towards that person to where hatred and bitterness start to creep in. What started out so small, you know, I heard of siblings that started off with just, you know, a little disagreement. 
that stopped talking to each other. It went on for years and years. And they said, what caused this? They say, I can't remember. I'm serious. I've heard that happen where people are just like, I can't even remember what we were fighting about, but we haven't spoken in like 30 years. See, the enemy loves to get in there and just bring on full-on division and disrepair in those relationships. But it's not, it shouldn't be that way with believers. Listen, if you've been hurt or wronged by somebody in the church or, or just a, a fellow believer in general, go to that person. Share with them what you've experienced. So often we think, they're the ones that hurt me, so they've got to make the first move. It's not up to me. They've got to make it right. I'm hurt. They've done this to me. They've got to come. And oftentimes they're sitting there going, I don't have any idea that I did that. I don't even know that that person's hurt. And when you go and you share that as is biblical, Matthew 18, you go and you share that hurt with somebody, suddenly they go, oh my goodness. I didn't even realize I said that or I certainly didn't mean it that way. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Suddenly you're like, oh, well that was, that was easy. I wish I didn't spend so much time letting that brew and fester in me. I should have done that long ago. And you start to realize, man, they're really quite nice, actually. They're really sorry about that. And even if they don't admit they're wrong or, or seek forgiveness, forgive them anyways in the Lord. Leave it to the Lord. Give it over to Him. Let Him deal with that person. See, the quicker that you can forgive, you release every little bit of thing in there that the enemy wants to get into and, and just send poison circulating through your veins of bitterness and anger. The quicker you forgive, the quicker you can release those things to say, I no longer need to be held hostage by these feelings. I've given it over to the Lord. Whether they're ready to seek reconciliation or not, deal with those things. Don't let division come in. As believers, I love what Paul says, our names are written in the book of life. In other words, we're going to be spending all of eternity together. Don't waste the little time we have in this world in grudge matches. I, I sometimes imagine going to heaven, and there's Peter, you know, waiting for me, and he's like, hey, yeah, Brent, uh, just can you come with me for a second? He whisked me off to a side room and I go in this room and there's another person there that maybe, you know, had beef with me or something like that and we're like awkwardly standing there going, oh, this is weird, you know? And then in comes walking and Peter's like, you know, just guys, just wait here a second. We can't quite send you out with the, with the rest right now in this. And then Jesus comes walking and he like sits down and he puts his feet up on the desk like a principal. He's like, so what seems to be the problem here? We're like, there's no, 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 there's no problem. We're all good. Oh, we're in heaven. This is all good. No problem. She's like, yep, that's what I thought. You guys may go, you know? And it's like, understand something that our, our conflicts become so trivial in light of eternity. We're not going to be sitting in heaven going, man, when is that person going to come and finally apologize? Right? I know they're hanging out at the glass sea, having a good time, but man, they need to come and make things right with me right now. We're not going to be in heaven holding out for these things. We're going to be in heaven going, oh my goodness, we are forgiven. And we're saved. And we're spending time with Jesus. And we're going to recognize the need just for forgiveness with everybody. Everything's going to be made right. Why waste our time in this temporal world having these beefs and conflicts and divisions. We're written in the book of life together. We're on the same team. 
Don't let differences divide. We're going to be in heaven together. So have that mind of Christ now. Paul says, secondly, to stand strong in joy. He says in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Paul comes down and he brings us back to that very theme of the book, joy. I love this here. Again, just as he said to Euodia and Syntyche to have the same mind in the Lord, he says rejoice in the Lord. And when are we to do that? Rejoice in the Lord when we're feeling good, when everything's going our way. Rejoice in the Lord when? Always. In other words, there's never a time that we can say, you know what, I just don't really have any reason to be joyful. When you're rejoicing in the Lord, there's always reason to be joyful. And Paul says, I don't want you to miss this, man. I, I, I got to repeat myself. He doesn't wait even for a couple of verses. He's like, I'm going to say it right now. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it again. Rejoice. I'm not going to wait till another verse. I'm going to say it right now. It sound like a broken record here, but that's okay because I want this to sink in how we can be rejoicing in the Lord. This is a deliberate action we need to take. The idea is to just take joy in Jesus. Be joyful in Jesus. No matter what your troubles or your concerns, Jesus is still greater than all of them. See, the life that we have in Jesus far outweighs whatever curveballs this world can throw at us. Whatever might come our way, Jesus far outweighs that. There's still always reason to say, despite what I might be facing, that's why Jesus says, rejoice in the Lord. He doesn't say rejoice in your circumstances, because there are certain things that you'll have come upon you that you're going, I don't want to rejoice in this, and that's fine. There's a lot of things I don't want to rejoice in. But I can always rejoice in the Lord. And regardless of what comes our way, Jesus stays constant. Jesus stays the same. Jesus is always with me and there's always reason to rejoice in him. So Paul says, again, I'll say, rejoice. Let that attitude and perspective be ours here. And he says, let your gentleness be known to all men. See, don't be, don't be fighting through, or fighting and quarreling and disputing with others. Don't be fretting and despairing. He says, keep calm, be gentle. That's that idea. Is like just be calm. Let people see a gentle, calm demeanor rather than a frantic, fearful disposition. Here's why we should do that. Because Paul says the Lord is at hand. Now we can interpret that a couple of different ways. The Lord is at hand, meaning he's here with us. He's with us to comfort us, to, to supply what we need, to be a, a strength for us. We don't need to be you know, struggling through, fighting through things, feeling anxious as we're going to see here. The Lord is with us. He's an ever-present help in time of trouble. The Lord is at hand. But secondly, we read that also as the Lord is coming soon. He's at hand. The Lord is getting ready to gather his bride together where we recognize that everything that we're going through in this world is that much more temporal. It's fading away. This is not meant to be our life. Jesus is coming soon. And I believe, boy, when you look at what's going on in the world and you read through Revelation with a very literal view, my goodness, the Lord is coming soon. And we're going to recognize whatever I've gone through in this life, it was all worth it for the comparable greatness of just being with Jesus. He's coming soon. I'm going to be with him. The Lord is at hand. So don't be freaking out, frantic. Don't be fighting and feuding. Be gentle. 
Be calm. Be trusting the Lord. There should be joy in the life of the believer. You know, you, you, can, you can encounter a lot of Christians. You know, I said, uh, you know, earlier today, I don't know where this came from, but uh, a saying that we've always used is that you can encounter a lot of Christians that look like they've been baptized in pickle juice, right? Don't know what that means exactly, but you see some Christians, they just seem very sour. They just seem very, always down, discouraged. And you're just going, do you know Jesus? Do you know the joy that he brings us? Because I don't see it. And, and the joy of the Lord is not dependent. It's not happiness. It's not dependent on our circumstances around us. It's something that comes inwardly and it flows out and it should be something that's evident in the believer. Just to have this joyful disposition where we can just, man, be filled with joy, laugh. You know, laughing has a lot of health benefits to it. You know the saying, laughter is the best medicine? There's truth to that. Did you know that laughter increases health-enhancing hormones and reduces stress hormone levels? Laughter even boosts the immune system. We could have gotten rid of COVID a lot longer if we just laughed a little more. T-cells are activated when laughing, which immediately begins to help fight off sickness. Did you know that laughter is a natural exercise. Laughing 100 times has the same effect of being on a rowing machine for 10 minutes or a stationary bike for 15 minutes. Cancel your gym memberships and you'll laugh even more. You get to exercise for free. <laughs> laughing lowers your blood pressure. Learn to laugh at your own mistakes and you'll be doing yourself a favor. I think the lesson is very clear for us. Whether you like to or not, laugh at my jokes and you'll be much more healthier. It's, it's just a good thing to do. It's biblical. But as you know, the, the average child, the average child laughs 400 times a day and the average adult laughs 15 times a day. I don't know why that is, but something happens where people seem to maybe get a little bit just complacent or withered. But I believe the person that matures in the Lord increases their joy and it should be evident by just that jovial attitude you know the lord jesus said in john 15 11, these things i've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full man i pray that your joy is full bubbling over bubbling over in just that disposition where people say and see man there's something different about you there's a joy there that i haven't seen or experienced before. Martin Luther said that you have as much laughter as you have faith. I think that's very true. And it's faith that is so key for us to continue on to be joyful even in spite of things like worry and anxiety. That's what we look at next here. Look at how we're to stand strong and trust. It says in verse six, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now think this through. Paul says, be anxious for nothing. Well, wait a second. What about if I lose my job? No. Don't worry. Don't stress it. God's got it. Well, what about if the doctor gives me a bad health report? What am I going to do? Stop stressing. The Lord knows. Give it over to him. Jesus let us know that worry was unnecessary for the believer. Matthew 6, a great sermon on the mount. He gave us a great 
instruction there. We're not, we're not going to read through all that, but you know these verses here. I hope you know, but he says, if God's caring for the birds and God's clothing the lily of the fields, how much more is he going to care for you? How much more is he going to care for you who are made in the image of God, made differently than the rest of his creation? If he cares for them in that way, how much more will he not care for you? So he says, don't worry. But seek him and his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Don't stress on these things. Corey Ten Boom says, worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. See, worry fills people with misery in the present to try to prevent misery in the future. That's not a win-win situation there. Worry fills people with misery in the present just to try to stop it from happening in the future. It's not a good outcome. No, it doesn't work. And yet, according to a study that was conducted, 91.4% of the things that we worry about never actually happen. You know how much hours we lose sleep over thinking about these things, and yet they never really materialize? You know, a dense fog that can cover seven city blocks 100 feet in depth when it is condensed into water doesn't even quite fill a, a drinking glass. A fog that thick, that big, that can block out seven city blocks can't even fill a glass of water. Like fog, our worries can thoroughly block out vision in light of God's promises. But in the final analysis, they have little substance to them. Oftentimes, our, our worries have very little substance to them. And yet, it, it completely dominates and controls how we think and what we do. But Paul tells us here, here's what you are to do. Rather than worry, he says, in everything, by prayer. In supplication with thanksgiving. Make your request known to God. Pray. Prayer is so important because this is where we get to commune with God and seek God. And we get our focus right back on where it needs to be. In everything, Paul says, pray. I love that. He says elsewhere, pray without ceasing. You think, how do you do that? Well, prayer is all about just living. And prayer without ceasing is really all about just living with that, that constant consciousness of God that God is with you in all that you do and and the lines are open the lines are open where God says wherever you are whatever you're doing you have an audience with me think about the privilege and the blessing of that we have an audience with the king of kings and lord of lords where he says I not only not only want you to come and seek me and pray I love to spend time with you and prayers to be a two-way street where we're not just coming and bringing our request to God oftentimes we think of prayer is just that we, we take that, you know, five minutes, two minutes, where we just come and say, Lord, help me with this, do this. Can you do that for me? Can you handle that? Can you take care of that? And it's like, you know, a kid going to the mall at Christmas time to see Santa, and he just sit on the knee, and it's like, I need this, and I want that. Can you help me get this? And, and we sometimes treat God that way. And yet, prayer is to be much more than that. Prayer is about communion with God. Getting a fresh perspective and, and, and his heart on these matters to be comforted by God. That's what God desires to do in that time of prayer. It's just to still us 
comfort us. That's what Paul's getting at, is that the peace of God then begins to fill you. But there's a place where we come and bring supplication. That's bringing our request to the Lord. Now, in that passage in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, you know, the Lord knows that you need all of these things. And that's great, and that's awesome, and it's true. God knows your need more than you know your own need. But why does God want us to bring our requests and supplication? Because God wants you to express your need for him to supply your needs. God wants you to be in a place where you say, I know I can't do this on my own. I need you, Lord. And I need you to come and help me with these needs. So I'm coming to you. That's why he says, bring your supplication. Because I want to... I want to see your heart crying out and recognizing your need for me and to do so in thanksgiving. Do so with gratitude, with joy. Again, we're not to come praying with a grumbling and complaining heart. God, how could you do this to me? Why are you letting this happen? God, where are you? Oftentimes, that's how people like to pray. Paul said, no, come with thanksgiving. Why? Because regardless of what your needs are, Jesus has already taken care of your greatest need, and that was salvation, forgiveness of sin. Jesus has already done the greater thing. No matter whatever he might do down the road, even if he never answers another need for me, he's already handled the greatest need that I have, that I can continue to rejoice in him and be thankful because my life is saved and I'm going to heaven. And regardless of what goes on in this world, I recognize again, it's temporal. I know exactly where I'm going. And one day I'm gonna be with Jesus and it'll all be worth it. But praise the Lord, he continues to work and minister to us in our time of need. He's an ever-present help for us. Trust him and be thankful for his faithfulness. And then verse seven, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. What a great promise that is to those who turn to the Lord in prayer and trust. The peace of God, he says, is gonna be with you. When you're trusting the Lord and resting in him through prayer, you're not frantically running around anxiously trying to fix everything. You're at peace. I love in Isaiah uh, 26, he'll keep you in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. I love that. You see, that peace begins to guard you so that when you're waiting on the Lord in prayer and that peace comes upon you, it acts as that guard for your heart and your mind so that when, when temptation, when worry, when anxiety wants to creep in, it's like, oh, hold on, no, that's, that's not a friend right there. No way, not gonna have that. I'm resting in the Lord here. I'm trusting in his goodness and his strength, his help, his peace right now. It guards all those other things from coming in that are contrary to him how valuable it is to just take time to rest in the lord to experience his peace we sometimes don't experience his peace because we're so frantically going about trying to you know take care of everything ourselves trying to handle everything trying to fix everything and we don't experience his peace because we're so busy going about we don't ever just stop to say lord i just i just need to rest in you i want to know your peace i love I love the story of Jesus when he's in the boat with his disciples. They're going across the Sea of Galilee and a great storm comes up. And the disciples, and these are experienced fishermen. They've handled this stuff before and yet this storm hits them and they're like, oh my goodness, this is a doozy. We're gonna die, Jesus. And they're like, Jesus is sleeping. Doesn't he care? They're waking up, Jesus. 
How come you're safe in our? Don't you care about us? It's like, oh my goodness, you have little faith. How could Jesus be sleeping? Because he knew that they were going to get to the side. He trusted in his heavenly father. He knew that nothing would befall them. He knew that God was there for them, that they were going to get to the other side. And so often, we're so busy, frantically pacing about, worry and anxiety creep in, and we're failing just to rest in the Lord and know his peace. Do you know that God has oftentimes done a lot of great things to those that were sleeping? What was Adam doing when he found his bride? He was sleeping. Can you imagine if Adam goes, hey man, I got all these animals coming to me. One, you know, two by two, they're female, male, they're a couple, this is great, but where's my mate? Like, and if Adam said, I gotta get out there and find my wife. Imagine if he goes, goes out there and tries to do it all himself. He'd be coming home with a woman that likes to swing from trees and needs a shave. Wouldn't have been good. But God provides a wife for Adam when he's asleep. Same thing happened for Boaz. Ruth comes and sits at his feet, giving herself to him. Abraham is asleep when God makes the covenant, fulfills his promise with Abraham. God says, Abraham, I don't need you to sweat this one out. Just take a nap. I'll take care of it. See how God loves to work when we're just resting in him? That's what God does. And Paul says, oh, that you might just come to the Lord. And you might just come to the Lord and experience his peace and his faithfulness. Spend time just praying, communing with the Lord. And let that peace guard your hearts and minds from the worry and the anxiety that so often wants to get its way in there. Making God our first retreat rather than our last resort keeps us guarded from worry. Our hearts and minds don't need to be racing through the what ifs. We just rest in God's good and perfect will. Lastly, stand strong in truth. Verse eight, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Paul gives us a bit of a filter here because again, you're gonna combat these things. You're gonna combat the enemy wanting to come and throw thoughts in your mind that are not productive or fruitful. Paul says, here's a filter. Just like he says in, in, in 2 Corinthians, that I take every thought captive under the obedience of Jesus Christ. Paul says, if these thoughts don't line up with what is true or what's noble, what is, what is honorable or what is just and righteous or right, what things are pure or what things are lovely or a good report. If your thoughts are not lining up with these things, if, if, they, don't, if they don't, you know, match up with these things, then let these things filter them out. Don't, don't dwell on them. Don't think those things. If there's anything of virtue and praiseworthy, those things think on. In fact, meditate on those things. Let it be continually circulating in your mind and in your thoughts. That's that idea of meditation. Meditation, we think in our you know, Western world is, uh, or in secular culture, we think of meditation as like, empty your mind, you know, just be free, right? That's not the biblical term for meditation. Biblical idea of meditation is to be filling your mind. 
And ultimately, it's that idea of chewing, uh, a cow chewing the cud. He's like, he takes in something, he swallows it, and he's like, man, that was good. I, need, I think I need a little bit more of that. And he like regurg- regurgitates, brings it back up, spits it back, starts chewing on it again. He's like, man, there's some good nutrients in here. There's some things I missed out the first time. I want to you know, play with that a little bit more. Swallows it. He's like, ah, you know what? I kind of need, need a little bit more. And you know, brings it back up. I don't know how cows sound, if that's doing it justice at all, but that's how I think of them. So brings it back up, and they start chewing on it again. They're like, man, there's still something more that I can get out of this. That's what it is to meditate on these things, is I keep meditating, keep reprocessing through these things and filling your mind with good things, good thoughts, biblical thoughts. That's why we're called to meditate on the scriptures. Don't just read it and be like, oh, that was great. Man, read it, but then start having that mull through your mind throughout the day. And you're gonna see you're gonna keep getting something out of it that's gonna feed your soul and bless you. So let this be a filter for you. Is this thought line up with what we're seeing in verse eight? If not, then don't put it away. That's not of the Lord. I don't need that. The things, verse nine, the things that you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul, you see, is modeling all this quite well. He says, hey, what do you see in me? Do it. What's Paul been doing? He's been sitting in prison in Rome. And guess what? He's been rejoicing in the Lord. He's not troubled over circumstances. He's looking at a situation going, you know what? My heavenly father loves me. He's got a plan for me. He's working on his purposes. So I'm just gonna keep rejoicing in the Lord. What you've seen, what you've heard from me, Paul says, do it. Start to live a life of joy, regardless of your circumstances. Experience the peace of the father as you do. Doing what, what Paul is doing ensures us experiencing that peace of God and the God of all peace, knowing that he'll be with you and he's taking care of you. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we're so grateful for who you are, God, all that you've done for us. We're thankful that we can take a day like today and just go through your word and just have such practical things be applied to our lives. Lord, I know that all of us at times struggle with worry and stress. And Lord, we come before you here today and we acknowledge, Lord, how we, we know we don't need to do that. And we pray for your help, Lord, that we wouldn't struggle with it, but rather we would take it all to you. We'd come to you. Lord, we'd, we'd come and just enjoy that time of communion with you where we see your goodness and your faithfulness, Lord, where we experience that peace of God that goes beyond all understanding. And I pray that you would comfort us in that stress and anxiety would begin to just fall by the wayside. Lord, guard us from those things. May we walk in unity. May we walk in joy. May we continue to live a life of trust in you and following your truth, Lord. Go with us now, we pray. In your name, Jesus, amen.